1: Emmy and Peabody award-winning director Eugene Jarecki is interested in American justice, poetry and film, journalism, and Elvis Presley. In his latest documentary, The King, Jarecki jumped behind the wheel of Elvis' Rolls Royce to drive cross-country on a musical trip in an effort to explore the loss of authenticity in America. We're at a time where we're looking very closely at what the American dream really means. Who is there that any of us can think of more poetically represents the American dream than Elvis Presley? said the director. As a musician, Elvis began from humble roots, but soon had a meteor-like career, and the film was meant to highlight these parallels with America. The director added, I think Elvis is a person who got lost, and he got lost at the height of his power. Isn't that America too? In addition to The King, the director has also made films such as Why We Fight, Reagan, The Trials of Henry Kissinger, and Freakonomics. You can also find this interview in print form on the Creative Screenwriting website.
0: Listen, we're at a time where we're looking really closely as Americans at what the American dream really means. And who is there that any of us can think of who more poetically represents the American dream than Elvis Presley? And that's for for every reason. You know, so much about Elvis is like America, where he came from the sort of from humble roots onward and upward his incredible meteoric career that mirrors so much about the American story and yet also as so many Americans today are struggling not only to keep body and soul together, but also with the soul part of that, you know, trying to keep an understanding of what it's all about and the meaning of the country. I think Elvis is a person who got lost and he got lost at the height of his power and isn't that America too?
1: There's a scene where James Carville kind of describes there was life before Elvis and there was life after he arrived. There's two different points in history, basically. Was Can you pinpoint, like, an initial sensation? Was it the rags the riches story, the voice? Like, what was the first real spark that, that got him so popular?
0: I think Elvis was authentic, and he was authentic in a way that blew apart pre-existing barriers. The first of those, of course, was that he sounded like a black person in his music. And nobody had had the courage or the particular social positioning to bring that to a widespread white listening public before. And for Elvis, it just was second nature. He came from, you know, Tupelo, Mississippi, and had all of that white poverty, black poverty, church going, community. Uh, he had all that identification of 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 being on the struggle side of life. He had that in his blood, and so it came out through his music in a very authentic way. In an era where America in the '50s was post-war, kind of somewhat superficial, we had the White Picket Fence, and we had a you know pretty uh, sort of orchestrated society with all that you know the, all that sort of uh, Lawrence Welk orchestra kind of feeling coming out of Hollywood and out of the music business, and then along comes this crossover white kid. It's a little like Eminem today. You know, he was just a very authentic messenger of things that had previously been strictly the province of the black American experience. I think that was what first caught people by storm. And then, of course, he's a very sexy person, so he had an amazing sexual sort of appeal to him. He was a sex, he was a, you know, sort of a, a screen idol before there were screen idols. And I think he was able to um, blow people away um, on that level too. So just the whole combination of this raw, very rural and genuine sensibility combined with these, heart, you know, heart-stopping looks and his ability to move, it was uh, it was a, it was a foregone conclusion that this guy was going to set the country on fire, and he did. The moment he hit the national airwaves, not only did people react with joy and elation. There were conservative groups and church groups and others who said in not even veiled racist language, this guy is unleashing sexuality and, and racial overtones and all kinds of things that white picket fence middle America wasn't quite ready for at that time.
1: The, the car in the film, his car kind of gives us a, a good feeling of movement and that kind of thing in a documentary. When did you decide to use that as a thread throughout the movie?
0: We'd started to make a film about Elvis Presley and the state of the American dream before we had any idea of putting a car in the film. And while we were in development of the film, all of a sudden it became possible that we could take the car on a road trip and that the car could become this sort of central character in the film, almost like a ghost car that would allow us to follow Elvis's ghost across the country and um, explore the country through his eyes, look back. In a way, look back and look forward at the road behind us and the road ahead as a nation, understand the people we were meeting along the way, and have them all kind of think and talk and play music in the back seat of this car, which had such a symbolism for not just for Elvis and for the hopes and dreams of an Elvis. But also for how things went wrong for Ellis. You know, a Rolls Royce is not a Cadillac. It's not a convertible Thunderbird. It's not a romantic American big sky country car. It's more the car that a guy living in Hollywood with too much power and too much money finds himself lost in the backseat of.
1: So you had this idea, and it shifted, so I'm sure it shifted a lot from, from various aspects, from the idea to the, to the final film. How did you kind of start to connect those dots and like line up these specific subjects and interviews for the movie, especially the, some of the uh, well-known actors and that kind of thing?
0: Well, we always knew that we were going to try to make as definitive a movie as possible. Not really about Elvis. It's not a biopic. There are other people who can, who can do that um, and do it better than me, I think. What we were trying to do was a movie about Elvis and America, and as such, there were certain people that you just knew you couldn't make a movie about Elvis and America and not have those people in it. You couldn't make a movie without somebody like Peter Goralnik, who wrote the definitive biographies of Elvis, or Elvis's best friend. Jerry Schilling or Emmylou Harris or, you know, uh, people who have devoted a lot of their lives to the places like Memphis and Nashville and New York and Vegas, places where Elvis, you know, milestones that he touched along the way. But I also knew I couldn't make a movie about Elvis without having Chuck D in it. Chuck D, of course, the founder of Public Enemy, who most famously is a rapper accuses Elvis of being a racist. And I thought we had to really explore that question and understand where Chuck was coming from and where people who don't agree with that are coming from. Obviously, race is a big issue these days, and it should be, because America and race are a really unfinished story, and we got a lot of work to do. And understanding whether Elvis was a racist was a very important thing, and I think we've done a lot to help people understand that in many ways Elvis was the opposite of a racist. Elvis was from the earliest times in his life a person courageous enough to represent in many ways the black community as a white artist playing music that other white people wouldn't be caught dead playing and they would have been hung for playing it. So there's a time in Elvis's life where I think he's quite the opposite of a racist. He's got one of the most open minds and open ears and open hearts you can imagine. I think it's maybe later in his life that what we see is how the music business stole the music of black people and black people didn't profit from it in the way that white people did. And then we also have some questions that come up in the film about whether Elvis, when push came to shove, and the black community needed all the help it could get you know, during the civil rights movement, did Elvis step up for those very people whose music he loved so much and whose culture he loved so much? And there are certain people in the film, Van Jones, Chuck D., and others, uh, who make the case uh, that uh, in many ways he didn't step up um, and uh, maybe could have. And are we there to blame Elvis? Not really. That's not fair. You know He's been gone a long time and can't defend himself. It's more, let's think through these things. And what is a celebrity supposed to do in their culture? And what obligation do people have? Are they supposed to speak up? Are they supposed to keep quiet? If they're supposed to keep quiet, isn't this a democracy? Shouldn't everybody say exactly what they feel? So it's those kind of questions that came up.
1: Let's talk about some of the some of the themes in the in the film. There's cultural appropriation, poverty, life in America, even even fame to some aspect. Were there any of those themes that surprised you about the film you didn't know were going to be there before you started?
0: It's always surprising to me, and it shouldn't be by now because I've been making films a good good amount of time, how marvelous human beings are and how they never are what you think they're going to be. They surprise you, they have ways of seeing things that you're not expecting. You know, In this country, we've had the Democratic Party and the Republican Party pound into our heads that people are blue or they're red, as if we're all walking around with blueberry or raspberry-colored skin, when the fact is people are purple. I know lots of people who have very blue ideas on certain things, very red ideas on other things. I know people who are blue but live in red counties. I know people who are red but live surrounded in blue counties. And people get along and they think through things a lot more with each other than we're led to believe by the evening news. And so when I got out across the country, whether I was in Memphis or the Deep Delta or whether I was in South Dakota or New Mexico or Nevada or Utah, anywhere along the way, all the places we drove that car, you just find that people have an amazing ability to know a dollar from a dime and they really have common sense And that's been one of the most beautiful things that people always talked about is sort of common sense of the American people. And to look at American politics today with a verifiable crazy person in the White House and with a two-party system that's totally failed the American people, where nobody trusts anybody in public life, you know, you start to think, where is the common sense of the American people? But I believe in it. I just think that the American people's democracy in many ways got hijacked by big business. I don't think it's any secret that the .00001% control all the money, and everybody else is wondering what happened to them. So that's what struck me over and over: is that in the face of that kind of indignity, that so many people are suffering—white people are suffering, black people are suffering, Chicano Latino people are suffering—everybody's struggling because a very small few are not. And in the face of all that, they have common sense, they have care, they have love, they try their best with their families. So. The experience going across the country in Elvis's car, this ostentatious, rich, royal car made in England, and to see the America through that window, it really, it really moved my heart. You know, it really, it amazed me to see people's ways of surviving and getting to the next day. And I draw a lot of uh, faith and I draw a lot of inspiration from that as we look ahead to the, to the serious jobs we have that lie ahead of us as a country. And I think that. You know, you look at those wonderful Parkland students who watch their fellows get gunned down all around them, and they turn it into something that they try to make the world better with. All of those things that we're seeing are the beginnings, I think, of a better America, um, bouncing back from a period where I don't think there was enough care. I don't think there was enough kindness.
1: What was the actual time frame of the film? There's definitely like an, an interview or a conversation with Alec Baldwin that was prior to the election. Did you start this in 2016 and then move it past the election? When were you actually filming this movie?
0: We did. We shot the film basically spanning 2016. We started in the end of 15 and we ended in the early part of 17. So we were able to watch the country be really driven in two by that election. And we watched a time where people were absolutely fed up with the kind of status quo that Hillary and a lot of the Republican. Challengers represented the Washington that nobody wanted to hear from again. Then we watched the sort of exciting candidacy of Bernie Sanders really reaching back and touching people's kind of memories of the New Deal and what America could look like if we all took care of one another. And then, and we know what the Hillary people did to Bernie. And then we watched Donald Trump run essentially like a kind of horrible rebound guy. You know, the country's been abused for a long time. People have been you know, kept out of the mainstream, they don't have power, their vote doesn't count, they they get all the worst stuff heaped on them. And then somebody comes along and says, I'll make it better. And even if that person just promises to do it with a lot of hateful speech and this and that, a lot of people just felt anything but this. And I think they uh, they went into the anything but this kind of trap uh, uh, with Mr. Trump, and here we are. Now, I think that's st- still a positive thing in a way, because it means people are looking for change. They're, not just, they're just not going to get it this way. So we're going to have to keep working at this until we get the kind of uh, democracy that we deserve. We only deserve it by deserving it, and that takes work.
1: Because of that time period, did the election results you know, change the film at all, or did it just kind of you know, confirm this, this kind of negative hypothesis that really is the, the whole basis of the movie?
0: The hypothesis of the movie, in a way, I think is positive because, and I'll, I'll get into what you're asking in a second, but I don't have a negative feeling about the way we're headed. I think that all countries grow up, and I think we are a relatively young country, but I think we're kind of entering like a bit of a midlife crisis, just like Elvis did, just like I did in my life. And boy, anybody who's had a midlife crisis, they'll tell you about a lot of learning they go through. And they come out the other end of it very different than how they went in. They go in cocky. They go in with no sense of their own potential shortcomings. Everything I do is right. Nothing I do is wrong. And they come out the other end a little bit worse for the wear, but they're much more likable. Anybody I know is had a midlife crisis, they come out the other end, you're like, hey, you're a likable person again. So I don't have a bad feeling about this at all. I think it's work that we have to do. But nobody told us that democracy wasn't going to be work. Of course it's work. It's one of the hardest things in the world to do is to keep a system healthy and pure where everybody's voice counts and not let corrupt actors who gather money, resources, power run roughshod over everybody. That's one of the hardest things. We had thousands of years of human history where it was all kings and queens running the show. And the whole point of this country was we broke off from that. So. I didn't feel at ever that I'm doing something negative. I feel like I'm doing something very positive in a very negative time. And I'm trying to make it I'm trying to find the positive, the silver lining is always on my mind. When Donald Trump got elected, of course, people called me that night and they were like, I cannot believe what just happened. I cannot believe that this country that once had Lincoln and Washington and Jefferson and other people sitting in the halls of power now has A failed casino magnate, rich kid, got money from his parents and became a reality television star. That's who's running the country right now, before they even knew about porn stars and everything else. So people called me like crying on my shoulder. But the weirdest thing was they all told me, but this is great for your movie as if I'm some kind of ambulance-chasing lawyer, where the worse the world gets, the better it is for my movie. Well, the fact is it's not good for my movie. All that said was the country had reached a breaking point like Elvis once reached. And Donald Trump is like the image of everything that destroyed Elvis, the wolf at the door, that tore Elvis to pieces and got rid of his authenticity and sold him out to the highest bidder until there was nothing left of him but a broken person hooked on things that were trying to soothe away his pain. So, yes, I saw the metaphoric relevance of the election, but it didn't stop there because there's been a year since I first premiered this film at the Cannes Film Festival in France. And then we went to Sundance, and we've changed the film in a lot of ways since because the film now represents a lot of the hopes I've come to feel in this era. I think Trump, the one thing you can say to his credit, whether he intended it or not, is that he's so controversial and he's angered so many people that movements that are serious movements to take parts of society more carefully and more seriously and show people greater dignity, whether it's the Me Too movement or or Time's Up or the Parkland students or Black Lives Matter or, you know, the defense of these immigrant children that are being put effectively into concentration camps right now. All of that is an amazing set of developments for any democracy. Every American should be proud of seeing that. And I derive enormous inspiration from that. And it's been working on the film all that time that allowed me to feel that.
1: So obviously very you know, passionate about these themes and ideas. You've made several documentaries over the years. When did you kind of decide to put yourself into the film? And, and like there's a point where you're talking with one of your uh, your crew about the movie you're making. When did you decide to do that? And, and do you also see yourself as kind of a spokesman for the ideas represented in your films?
0: To the first question, I had to be in the film because somebody had to drive this car and it would have felt weird if people were in the back seat talking and playing music. And you wondered, is that thing being pulled by a rig or like, is anyone driving this thing? And a couple of people, uh, Ashton Kutcher, David Simon and a few other people actually drive the car. I felt I had to I, I felt called upon to drive the car because I was the one directing the film and I had to talk to people and interview them. And we had a car full of cameras. So it was going to be me and them and some cameras. And I wanted to make sure that people didn't worry when they're playing music in the back of the car or talking to us, you know, who was driving the car. And I also didn't want the audience sitting there wondering, what's going on? Is this a setup? Is the the car being pulled by a rig or something like that? So what you see in the film when we're driving and talking across the country, that's just the real stuff happening. And if the car breaks down, which it did 20 times, then it breaks down. And then the people in the back are helping me push the car. And uh, we're picking up hitchhikers in the car. So the car had a real life, and I wanted to be um, very sensitive to that as we went. Anytime somebody—you know, I had many interviews where in the middle of interviewing somebody, I was interviewing the, the country star John Hyatt at one time in, uh, in Nashville, and in the middle of interviewing him, somebody come up and started asking him for money. Somebody on the street needed a, a helping hand. And can you imagine what that's like when you, you know, so we we were going across the country that way. And I think that, so once I, now once I went in the film in that way, um, naturally I'm having conversations with people and the, you know, we don't script these films. So what people say is what I get and then I have to think through where does that take me, and what's my answer to that, and then how's that going to build? And so the dialogue, there's a lot of people in the film, famous people and not famous people, mixing up their ideas together into this kind of American chorus of feelings and perspectives and ideas, and I'm there to sort of curate that. So by definition as the director, I have a certain role in in shaping where everybody seems to kind of agree, where a collective vision emerges. But now that I'm out with the film on the road and I'm the primary person talking for the film, sure, I feel a responsibility to everybody who's in the film to represent what they think and feel well for the American public who will see the film and the world public who will see the film. So there's a lot of pressure to be fair and be mindful and you know, try to do something that, that makes this world better.
1: For our readers that are not really familiar with you know what it takes to, to make a film like this, what kind of footage are you are you starting with like how much video and recordings do you have, and how do you filter that down to and uh, what I have here is an hour and forty seven
0: minutes We shot roughly and we shot roughly one thousand times as much footage as we need for that hour and forty five minutes and that 's a ridiculous ratio. The reason that ratio is so high is that we 're running multiple cameras filming essentially music video level cinema level you know material cinema scope in the back of a moving vehicle with you know everyday people luminary people tons of people coming through this thing and we're uh, through this vehicle and we're also leaving ourselves open to stop at any point along the way and let somebody you know um tell us their story we had that countless times you know we met a man who was the oldest man to carve Mount Rushmore. And we spent almost a whole day with him, the last surviving stone carver from Rushmore. And you can't say goodbye to that guy quickly, and you don't want to. It's too interesting. So the movie takes on a lot of footage, which then you get back to the editing table, and you think, well, this is still a movie about Elvis in America, so I'm going to make a short film about that stone cutter, and we've done one that's coming out. But maybe that's not going to be in this particular film. It'll be in its own short film. So we've done a lot of extra uh, material, and we have about 10 music videos, the stonecutters in one of them, uh, coming out in the next couple of weeks as the film rolls out across the country.
1: When you're in there editing, how are you, you know, what kind of thought process goes into also balancing out the themes of the movie as you're looking at the big
0: picture? I suppose it's a little bit like a chef planning a dinner. The chef has a certain vision of what kind of evening he or she wants to create and what they want to leave people with and what sort of an experience and with what ideas um, they want to interact. And I think the film director does a similar thing. And if you're open, you calculate into that, let me let fresh air come through here all the time. So we don't script this stuff. So it's not like I'm setting out on the road with a preconceived notion of who I'm going to meet or what they're going to say or what they're going to do or what's going to happen. That's all new and fresh and different. But when I get back to the editing table, of course, I know my taste and I know what I care about and what moves me. And that becomes a kind of divining rod for finding where the material is, where the good stuff is, that I want people to experience and feel. And the movie ends up being greatest hits of those good things. And then you step back from it. My mom always says when she comes in and looks at a cut like that of mine, she always says, well, it's like jewels in a bucket, what you've got here. It's just like a big bucket full of jewels. And then I have to organize that bucket. And when you start to organize that bucket and put things in their proper place and put the right things before the other things and put the other thing after the other thing, all that ordering and all that storytelling, well, that's the art of it. Everything up until then is the craft of it, is collecting together and doing the good work and making sure that you've shot beautiful images or that you recorded the sound well, that you chose your interviewees well, or that the car was a good idea, or anything else, any of the choices we made. But the art of the thing comes when you then have to take that all and synthesize it into something that is supposed to reach the mind and heart.
1: How is the king consistent with your interest in corruption and justice and exploitation?
0: I would like to think it's a culmination of all of the films I've made before in that all of my films have been chiefly concerned with America and with the struggles that people face here to have the country live up to its promise. And whether it was the war on drugs and the way in which it has hurt black America and the injustices of our prison industrial system, or whether it was Uh, the war in Iraq and my dangerous suspicion that the military-industrial complex um, was sending our young people into uniform to make wars for profit, or whether it was asking whether Henry Kissinger for his actions in Cambodia and Vietnam and elsewhere was a war criminal. I've always pursued um, things that hurt young men and women, things that hurt uh, the American dream, things that hurt justice or our chances for the kind of idealism we wish to, to, to see in our lives. Um, this is no different. The American dream was compromised along the way. This was an experiment in democracy that in many ways got hijacked by big business into being an experiment in unchecked capitalism. And who is it profiting? A very elite few. Well, I don't reme- remember reading anywhere in the founding documents that this was a country devoted to the very elite few. In fact, I think the whole point was that it was devoted to of the people, by the people, for the people, of the many, not of the few. And so this film, which tries to understand romantically and poetically what the hell went on here and how we can get back to a better place, is as much of a fight for justice and a much, as much of a fight for dignity and for a better world tomorrow than, as anything I've made.
1: How do you feel about being described as having the skills of a poet and a journalist?
0: I love that, because I think the world needs more journalism, it needs more of a pursuit of truth, but it also needs more of a poetic embrace of being alive, because just the facts, ma'am, is often not that inspiring. But if you can root yourself in fact, and then also tell a beautiful story that makes somebody feel happy to be alive, or ready to fight for the lives of others, or the dignity of others, then I think you've done something, and then you've harnessed the best of journalism together with the best of poetry if I could be anything in my life it would be a combination of those two things
1: thank you so much for tuning into the show before you leave don't forget to sign up for the weekly newsletter we also get free access to the freelancer course master the freelancer mindset this system will teach you exactly how to find clients online which includes step one the psychology of the mindset step two how to create a killer profile and step three how to find quality clients this online course is valued at $99. It can be yours for free. In addition to the free course, you'll get access to the ebook, How Hollywood Screenwriters Annihilate Writer's Block. This contains advice from Aaron Sorkin, Carrie Fukunaga, and William Monahan. You can find all of this and more on creativeprinciples.live. Visit the website for new interviews, articles, and the daily blog. That's creativeprinciples.live.